This morning we come to the close of our series through the book of 2 Samuel, as we are in 2 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, Next Sunday and the Sunday after that, our commissioned missionary John North will be with us, and John and his wife Lois will be with us for two weeks. And uh, so we will be hearing from the ministry of John as he shares the word with us. And then after that, we're going to shift gears, do something a little bit different. We're going to go through two very short little books, Second and Third John, as we learn about uh, sharing truth in love, but also loving people in truth. And uh, very fitting for the days in which we live right now, as we see uh, degrading in our culture, and a lot of things are happening around us, helping us find our role during these difficult days. So that's where we will be going, following John North being with us. But today, we conclude Second Samuel. I'm going to read this last chapter out loud. You can follow along in your copy of the scripture. Second Samuel chapter 24. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And it incited David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. The king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go about now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and register the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the King as while the eyes of my Lord the King still see. But why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and camped in Arior on the right side of the city that's in the middle of the valley of God and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim Hodshi, and they came to Dan Ja'an and around to Sidon, and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites, and they went out to the south of Judah to Beersheba. So when they had gone through the whole land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king, and they were in Israel, 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Now, David's heart was troubled. Now, David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go, speak to David. Thus thus the Lord says, I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which well, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your na- land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. 
let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let them fall into the hand of men. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It's enough! Now relax your hand! The angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aronah the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, Behold, it's I who have sinned. It's I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aronah of the Jebusite. David went up according to the word of God, just as the Lord had commanded. Aronah looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. And Aronah went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Then Aronah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. Aranah said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what's good in his side. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, the yokes of the oxen for the wood. Everything, O king, Aranah gives to the king. Aranah said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Aranah, no, but I will surely buy it for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land and the plague was held back from Israel. As we have looked at this book of 2 Samuel, we have noted that one of the encouraging things about the Scripture is that the Bible contains real accounts of real people living real life. One of the underlying questions throughout this book has been, who is eligible to sit on the throne? Who is eligible to serve as God's co-regent? And we've seen emerge David. David, the picture of Israel's ideal king, even though David's reign wasn't perfect. He sinned. In fact, we see him here in chapter 24 sinning again. And David dies, and yet in chapter 7, God had said that he would establish David's throne, and David's descendants would reign on that throne, and there would be a descendant of David reigning on that throne forever and ever. And Israel was looking for this anointed one, this Messiah. So much so that as we come to the New Testament, it's common knowledge, even outside of Israel, that Israel was waiting for Messiah, 
who would reign over God's kingdom, a kingdom of peace, who would reign in righteousness, looking for the anointed one. David, here as we come to the end of this book, is pictured for us as living real life, real accounts of a real man. We're going to see him once again today in chapter 24, sin. We're going to see him confess his sin. We're going to find him in his maturity accepting the consequences of his sin and not getting angry over it, but actually looking to the attributes of God. We're going to see him rely on God's mercy. We're going to see him as a recipient of the forgiveness of God. We're going to see that it's easy to fall into sin. David experienced this gross time in his life that's recorded from us from chapter 10 to chapter 12 where he grew self-dependent and not God-dependent. And in that state, he sinned against God and then he went at least nine months without confessing it in misery. And then today, at the end of his life, it's recorded for us, he sins again. But this time David is going to confess his sin immediately. And God is going to shower his forgiveness on him so that David knows that he is forgiven. David's going to talk about what it really means to sacrifice and worship. What an encouraging account this is. For us to come to the end of this book and see a real man living real life just like us. Several years ago, I decided that it would be neat to learn how to play the guitar. And I took some lessons for a while and found that I don't have any aptitude to play the guitar, but it's fun once in a while to bring it out and just sit out on my deck on a summer evening and play a little bit. So this summer, I took out my guitar, and as I opened my guitar case, the first thing that caught my eye was a dent. You see, I love wood. When I used to buy a rifle or a shotgun, I would never buy a synthetic stock because I love wood. I love the grain in the wood. And when I bought my guitar, I picked my guitar out because of the grain of the wood. It was just so beautiful. And the first week I had it, my case fell down and the clasp on the case put a big dent and a scratch right in my guitar. And I took it to a guy who was supposed to be able to fix it, but he couldn't. And... I exclaim to my wife, every time I get something nice, it gets dented or scratched. And, and it just, it's an, it's just a principle. It's always true for me. Nothing that's perfect ever stays that way. It's always got a scratch and it always gets a dent in it. My wife reminds me every time I get something new, it's going to get scratched. It's going to get a dent. But 
Perfection is so nice. The problem is, as you and I well know, we don't only get scratched and dented in our stuff, but we get dented and scratched. And the only time we're going to experience perfection is when we are with Jesus Christ himself. David experienced his share of scratches and dents in his own life and bore the scars of it. And yet as we come to the end of this book, we find encouragement. We find a man who has learned from his scratches and his dents. He's still learning. We find a man who finds that it's so easy to still sin. And yet this time, instead of waiting nine months, he confesses it right away. We find a man who has learned to rely on the mercy and grace of God. David. So as chapter 24 opens, we see a lesson that you and I know all too well. It's easy to fall into the sin of depending on our own selves and abilities rather than relying on God. It's easy. It's easy. We come to chapter 24, verse 1, and it tells us that the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Now, it doesn't tell us why. We see no detail. It just tells us that God is angry at Israel. Evidently, Israel has fallen into some sort of sin of which they have not repented. God is going to discipline them. The verse continues to say, Now the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. Now I preach from the New American Standard Bible. Here in 2 Samuel 24 verse 1, the editors who translated this verse did not do a good job. If you have any other translation this morning, if you have a King James, if you have an NIV, if you have an ESV, they will translate it, not it incited David, but he incited David, meaning God. And that's what, how it should be translated. It is a masculine form of the verb. It says, now again the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he incited David against them. Now, the reason why the New American Standard translated it, it, is that this verse is uncomfortable for us. How could God incite David to do something that's sinful? Now, we know from the whole teaching of Scripture that God does not cause people to sin. What even makes this more difficult is if you look at the parallel account of what's happening in 2 Samuel 24 in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 verse 1 we read the same account and it says this then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel so the chronicler says Satan is the one who incited David here in 2 Samuel it says God did How do we put that together? Most likely we should view this similar to Job. When Satan came to God and said, Ah, Job has it so easy. Let me 
not make life so easy for him. And God permitted Satan to allow Satan to attack Job. Here, most likely, God is permitting this attack, this inciting of David to do something that David shouldn't do. Ultimately, God will accomplish his purposes. Now, what I want us to see here in these verses is that it's very easy for David to fall back into the trap of self-dependence and not God-dependence. Here's what David does. He gives a command, I want a census taken. Now, it's not sin in and of itself to have a census. For example, if you go to Exodus chapter 30, verse 12, there's a direction there that if a census is taken, those who are counted are supposed to give an offering to the Lord. Some believe that didn't happen here. That's thus the reason why David felt guilt. I don't think that's the case. I think what's happening here is we see a clue of it in verse 3. Joab says to the king, King, may the Lord give you a hundred times as many soldiers while you can see it, but why do you need to do this right now? You see, David orders the census Because he wants to know how strong he is. He wants to know, what is my might? How capable am I of going into battle? And it's me, me, my, my might, my strength. And so he goes ahead and orders the census. And the results come in down in verse 9. There's 800,000 warriors of the northern tribes and 500,000 warriors of the southern tribes. 1.3 million soldiers and David's strength has been counted. Unfortunately, David has fallen into the sin of being self-dependent, not God-dependent. Another way of looking at a New Testament terms, he's living according to the flesh, not according to the spirit. He's trying to do things in his own strength, in his own capabilities, in his own power. About a year and a half ago, I bought my first chainsaw. Oh, it was a momentous event. You know, every guy should have a chainsaw. So I took my wife with me. We went over to Midway Equipment and said, I need a chainsaw. Well, the saw that the salesman showed me first was kind of an old guy's saw. It it had a, an easy start feature, and it the the, uh, ch- the the chain length was not terribly long, and and it's relatively easy to run. and And I immediately said, "Well, there's one right here. It's a lot bigger." And my wife says, "I think you should go with the old guy's saw." And I'm glad I did. I can't believe how tiring it is using it. But I've had lots of opportunity to use my saw. And last Saturday, I was out cutting up some more trees. And I was out using my saw. And I've learned something about using my chainsaw. Not to do it very long. 
When I first start using my saw on any given day, I'm very mindful of things like, where is my body positioned? Where are my legs? Where is this branch going to fall after I cut it? And I'm thinking about everything that I'm doing. But I find as I keep going, I just start thinking like I'm pretty much in charge of this saw and this saw is going to do whatever I want to do and this branch is going to do whatever I want it to do and I just stop thinking about where the branch is going to fall and I stop thinking about where that blade's going to go and I stop thinking about where my leg is positioned and that's when I need to quit because I start thinking that I'm in control of the situation. Whenever we start thinking that we are in control, we are on dangerous ground. And David, once again, started thinking that he was in control. Now, I want us just to think a little bit back over David's life as we've seen him here in 2 Samuel. In chapters 1 through 9... David saw victory after victory. Everything was going great in his life. And we saw him continually expressing his dependence on the Lord. Lord, should I go up to this city and conquer it or not? Lord, should I head this direction or not? We saw example after example of David seeking counsel from the Lord. But then when we got to chapter 10... David started sending people. And we saw the word sent repeated scores of times. David stopped doing what he should have been doing. He said, oh, I'll just send one of my men to go do it. And then we saw David not praying anymore. Before he he had prayed and asked God's guidance on his decisions, but now... It's absent. And then we see David starting to just fit in like all the other ancient Near Eastern kings around him. And when he had a victory, he started taking on more wives, even though the scripture told him he shouldn't do it. You see, David grew self-dependent, not God-dependent. And we saw in chapter 11, he fell into the sin of adultery went nine months at least without confessing it in misery. If you want to look at what he was going through, read Psalm 51. If you want to see what it's like to not confess your sin when you should, read Psalm 32. And he was miserable until God sent Nathan the prophet in chapter 12, confronted David about his sin. He said, I've sinned before the Lord. What's encouraging is after chapter 12, we see David once again depending on God. Just like he used to. In chapter 15, verse 31, David found out that his most trusty uh, uh, helper, his counselor, had gone and just rebelled against him. And in chapter 15, verse 31, it says, Now someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, Make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. We come to chapter 21 where there's a famine in the land. And it says there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the presence of the Lord. You see, David had learned 
that he cannot be self-dependent. He has to be God-dependent, that he needs the Lord's help. How easy it is to fall into the sin of self-dependence, and we see it here. David has been, he learned. And in chapter 10, he was so self-dependent, and he just kept digging deeper and deeper. And then he falls into this deep sin of adultery, and his life is miserable. And then he finally confesses it to the Lord. And ever since then, he's been depending on the Lord. It reminds us of of John chapter 15, verse 5, when, when, when Jesus compared being connected and vibrant in relationship with him to a, a vine and branches. And he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That needs to be a verse that every Christian has in our thinking that that we're cognizant of. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. And David was walking, depending on the Lord, and just in one moment, turns to self-dependence. Just like it's so easy for you and for me to start being self-dependent, and not God-dependent. Well, when we come to verses 10 through 17, we do see growth in David's life. We see that David has learned from the events of chapters 10 through 12, and no longer is David going to go nine months before he confesses his sin. Look at me at verse 10. Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. Literally, that Hebrew word there is strike. David's heart struck him. It struck him. I've sinned. In fact, he says in verse 10, I've sinned greatly in what I have done. He immediately confesses his sin when he comes under conviction by God's Spirit. And God sends the prophet Gad and says to David, I'm going to discipline you because of your sin. And David is not going to pout about that. He's not going to argue with God. He accepts his discipline. In fact, God is going to let him choose his discipline. How many of us as parents say to our children, okay, I'm going to let you choose your discipline. So God says to him, you can either have famine in the land or an oppressor come in and defeat you militarily or a plague. I'll let you choose. I can remember with my youngest when he was a little guy, my wife giving him time out and he tried to negotiate a different discipline and yelled down the hall, I'd rather have a spanking. Let's just get it over with. We don't normally get to choose our discipline, but here God let David choose his discipline. And instead of complaining about it, what David does in verse 14 is he looks to who God is 
and takes comfort in the attributes of God and said in verse 14, I'm in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are great. Then a neat verse. David says, I've sinned. The Lord's going to discipline me, but I have a merciful God and I'm going to trust in him that what he brings into my life is his best for me and I want to learn from it. What a humble heart. David, demonstrating that he has learned from his past experiences in his life. One of the things he's learned is this. Have a responsive conscience. As soon as David sensed that he had sinned, he immediately confessed it. My wife Barbara and I live kind of out on the edge of the city. We're still living in the county, and it has been somewhat more rural around where we live. And we have a pond behind our house that we share with some neighbors. And one of my favorite things to do is in the summertime, if we have a cool evening, and just have all the windows open and, and just go to sleep at night listening to the bullfrogs and the fighting coons and everything else outside. Well, one summer evening years ago, we were asleep, and I I heard some banging during the night. It was kind of like, and I startled, but I didn't get up to look or anything. I just thought, well, I wonder what that is, and I went back to sleep. A little later, I heard it again. I thought, what is that banging? But I'm tired. I, 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 I really don't care that much. I'm just going to sleep. All night long, I kept hearing this banging outside, and I thought, well, I guess tomorrow morning I'll look. And I get up in the morning, look out the window, and during the night, a driver went off of the road, through our ditch, into our pond, and water was up around his shoulders so that his head was above water. And that pounding I was hearing was him banging on the top of his car, trying to get one of the neighbors to come to his aid. He lived, by the way. But uh, I just kind of ignored it. I didn't, you know, I, I needed my sleep. I have other things to do and to think about. Kind of annoy, I kind of ignored that banging. One of the things that David has learned is not to ignore the striking of his heart. There's a there's a kind of almost a disturbing verse in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 2 when the apostle Paul is talking about false teachers and in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, he says, By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Now, our conscience is our ability to hear the Spirit of God. And what Paul's talking about there, it's possible to actually damage our conscience, to sear it so that it doesn't, hear right anymore. Now, how do we do that? We do that by ignoring the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
by doing things like, oh, I, I wonder if that's really right for me to do, but uh, it's not that big a deal. Or, well, I know it's sin, but everybody I know does this, and it's kind of become accepted, so I, it's not that big a deal. I'll just not worry about it. And every time, if we continue to kind of push away that convicting work of the Holy Spirit, we will find ourselves not actually even thinking that sin is sin anymore. But what we find is that the joy and the peace that the Spirit of God wants to replicate the life of Christ in our lives, we find that it's just not there. David experienced that once He doesn't want to experience it again. And so this time, even though it was so easy for him to sin, this time he's learned. And as soon as he felt that convicting work of the the Spirit of God in, in, in his heart, he says, I've sinned. And he was willing to accept not only the fact that he had sinned, but that God was going to discipline him. And he took comfort in the attributes of God. Well, he's a merciful God. He will deal with me as he sees fit, and I will trust him. This is such a neat book. I was with a bunch of pastors this week, this past week, and one of them asked me, what was the most meaningful thing to you about Second Samuel? And I came back immediately and said, because we see real accounts of a real guy living real life. And I said, you know what? He was scratched. He was dented. But God still welcomed him into his presence and that that God was still willing to use him. What an encouragement. And that's how this book ends in verses 18 through 25. By God assuring David that he's forgiven. We come to verse 18, and David has seen this plague, 70,000 people die. And David says, why, God, I'm the one who sinned. Why would these 70,000 people die? Even though if we came back to verse 1, remember that God was actually angry with Israel. And he's using David's actions here ultimately for his good and his glory. And he's going to discipline Israel. 70,000 have died, and David says, you know, discipline me. Well, God has relented from his discipline, but he wants to teach David and show David that he truly is forgiven. And so he instructs David to offer a sacrifice on a threshing floor owned by a guy named Aranah. Now, this is really significant here for two reasons. One, David is going to offer these sacrifices. In so doing, will be it will be a picture of the fact that God has forgiven him. But secondly, David is going to purchase this threshing floor upon which we know from 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, that will be this threshing floor is the future site of the temple. It's where Solomon will actually build the temple. We also know from ancient Near Eastern writings that the uh, the Jews 
according to their uh, their traditions, not part of Scripture, but according to their tradition, they believe this is with the site where Abraham was obedient to God here on Mount Moriah and offered up his son Isaac until God stopped him. So we have a highly significant place here where a place where David is going to experience that, yes, I'm forgiven. A place where possibly we see a father being so obedient to God that he was willing to offer up his only son, his promised son. And we see a place where People from all over the world can come and and find that they can be right with God. And David is obedient and he goes to Aranah and says, I want to buy this, this threshing floor. And Aranah says, I'll give it to you. And David says down in verse 24, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. What a neat verse about worship. David says, God has done so much for me. My response back has to have value. It's it's almost as if we went to the New Testament and read in 1 Corinthians 6.20 where God says, "You've, you've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. We owe him everything. David is not going to give cheap worship he's not going to give god his leftovers just like we should not give god well if i have any time left over in my week then i'll serve him if i have any finances left over from everything that i want to do then i will give to him that if i have uh, some giftedness left in me after i've done a lot of other things then i will use my giftedness to serve the lord no david said i will give back to the lord what's costly and precious to me. And he buys the ground, and it tells us in verse 25 that he built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. This is really important. If you go to the book of Leviticus, you'll see in those first chapters of Leviticus that the burnt offering and the peace offering are sweet aroma offerings. These are offerings that the worshiper would make before the Lord to celebrate being in fellowship with God. And oftentimes, they would enjoy a meal afterwards so that the part of the animal that could be eaten by the priest would be shared by all the worshipers there in a communal meal, celebrating, hey, we are right with God vertically, and we are right with God horizontally. Very similar to what we do when we come to the Lord's table. As we celebrate what God has done for us in sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us, and through faith in Him we can be right with God and right with our brothers and sisters in Christ for whom Jesus also died. And so here, God says to David, go make a burnt offering and a peace offering. What is that doing? It's telling David, hey, things are good between you and me. You're forgiven. We're in fellowship. During my Dallas seminary years, uh, I made a mistake of selling one of my vehicles to one of my best friends. It was my last semester of graduate school. I I needed money to pay off my last semester of tuition so that I could get through without having any debt. 
So what do you do? You sell your car. So I sold my car to my friend. I've got it solved. I can pay for my last semester, and the check bounced. I called up my buddy and said, hey, the check bounced. Oh, just run it through again. I ran it through again. Bounced again. I said, hey, man, it bounced again. I've got to pay my tuition. Oh, I'll write you a new check. He wrote me a new check and went to the bank, put it in the bank. Bounced again. I'm getting upset. So I finally went to, we were also, we're not only good friends, but we went to the same church and I went to my elders and said, listen, I've had three balanced checks. I've got to pay tuition. What are we going to do here? We all sat down together. He called his dad and his dad bailed him out so that I could pay my tuition. Now, what really complicates things is that we normally had holiday meals with this couple. I mean, they're from Nebraska. We're from Iowa and we're in Texas. And so we would often have like Thanksgiving together. And we're like a few days away. And I can remember telling Barb, well, they're not going to want to have dinner with us after we just went through this, so we better make other plans. And the phone rang. It was my buddy. He say, would you please still come have dinner with us? You know why that was important to them? Even though I had verbalized that we had forgiven them, they needed to see it. They needed to see that we could still sit down and have a meal together. And that's what's going on here. That that God not only is telling, affirming to David that because he's confessed his sin, that he's right with him, God wants him to see it. And so he instructs him to offer this, this sacrifice of a sweet aroma so that David could actually be reminded, yeah, I messed up again. But I've confessed it, and I've got dents, and I've got scratches, but God's a God of mercy and grace, and he's forgiven me. God follows our confession of sin with assurance of forgiveness of sin. Father, we thank you for this study through Second Samuel, and the hope and the encouragement that it gives us I've seen real accounts of real people living real life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.